Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if we were to describe this fallen world in terms of a house, what kind of a house would it be? Well, it would be a house with all the windows broken and holes in the walls and the cold, bitter wind of winter blowing through parts of the roof missing and the rain dripping through parts of the house on fire. No power, no light, no warmth, no food, no water, wild animals prowling through it and dangerous assassins lurking behind every door. Not the kind of house that you want to call a home. But if we were to describe the world as it was made to be in terms of a house, it would be very different. It would be solid and well-built and insulated, a place of safety, of refuge, of warmth, of life, of love, of abundance, of family and peace. And those two houses describe the world we live in. The same building can be a radically different environment. And we look forward to the coming of King Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring us back home, or in fact, more correctly, will bring home back to us. Jesus is coming to finish that great renovation for which he has already paid the price on the cross when he poured out his blood. And that renovating work will continue until everything is not just as it was, but is even better. On that day when he declares, behold, I make all things new. Now, the text that we have before us this morning speaks about his coming, the coming of the great king of the world, Jesus Christ. He comes to renovate this fallen down, this leaky, uncomfortable, dangerous shack of a fallen world and transform it back into the home of the children of God. And our text is full of anticipation the king is coming. And so it's a good text to use as Christmas approaches, as the New Testament church full of the Holy Spirit rehearses the lessons that she learned during her Old Testament childhood. The entire Old Testament is about Israel's hope and expectation of the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the holy seed of the woman, Israel's hope and expectation of the birth of the great king of kings who is coming to fix things and to set things right. Now, as we look at our text, which speaks of his coming as a shoot from the stump of Jesse, we have to ask ourselves when Isaiah preached this for the first time, what was the situation into which he spoke this word of promise of the coming of Christ. Well, we read Isaiah 6, and we read about Isaiah's call to ministry. 
which was about 10 or 20 years before our text. And we read there that God sends him to preach judgment to an unfaithful people. And so the first part of Isaiah is mainly judgment, chapters 1 through to 39, mainly judgment. And we saw how Isaiah 6 ended with God's people judged and judged again and cut down and reduced to only a stump and a remnant because of sin. And now in verse 1 of our text, we see that that judgment is not just on the people as a whole, but it's also on that great royal house of David, which is cut down, which is reduced to the obscurity of its pre-royal origins. It's not even called the house of David anymore. It's called the house of Jesse because he was a no one. Now, I want to take some time to situate you in the history of where we are in Isaiah chapter 11 because we've had a few references to Isaiah in the last weeks, but those were later in the book and they spoke about the exile in Babylon and the return from exile. But here in chapter 11, we're way earlier than that. So just to kind of give you a bit of a timeline, you've got Abraham about 19, 18, 1900 years before Christ. You've got David and Solomon about a thousand years before Christ. And then you've got Isaiah who starts his ministry about 740 years before Christ. And in, in Isaiah's time, in chapter 11 here, he's not speaking about the Babylonian exile and the return, because that's going to be about 100, 150 years later. But he's speaking about the present danger, which is Assyria, not Babylon, Assyria, which is coming from the north and the northwest. And so in 722, Assyria will finally destroy definitively the northern kingdom, Sargon II. He will destroy Samaria, the capital of northern Israel, and the northern tribes will be exiled and they will never return again. So that's just a few years ago here in chapter 11. Oh, sorry, let me rephrase that. That's just a few years in the future in chapter 11. Now, all of Isaiah's life, he has been living there in Judah under the shadow of Assyria's power. And Assyria is a cruel and a vicious nation. It has been threatening and attacking Syria and northern Israel and even Judah itself. And Ahaz, the king of Judah, is weak He's a weak man. He's a fearful man. He's an idolatrous man. You can read about that in Isaiah chapter 7. He's terrified, not just of Assyria. He's terrified of, of Syria and Israel that want to gang up together with Judah to fight Assyria. He's terrified of, of joining them against Assyria. And so he, he sends a letter to Assyria and says, come help me destroy my enemies. And Assyria obliges, destroys Damascus, the, the capital of Syria, destroys Samaria, the capital of of Israel, but then places Judah under heavy tribute. 
And in just a few decades' time, in 701, Assyria will come all the way to Jerusalem and will capture everything in Judah, and only Jerusalem will be left in the time of Hezekiah. It will be reduced to just one city. That's what's coming up in the next few decades. This is the situation in which Isaiah is preaching. Now think about what that was like for God's people. From Jerusalem to Samaria is about 100 kilometers. That's like St. Albert to Barhead. And so if you have a massive infantry force in Barhead, they can easily come from there in some three days, and they can be here on our doorstep in St. Albert. So just imagine that we're living something similar to the people of Israel in, or Judah in Isaiah's time. Just imagine that for, for the last few decades, Russian troops have been ravaging B.C. and northern Alberta, and they've conquered Alberta all the way from the north, all the way down to Barhead, and they forced the rest of Alberta to empty our bank accounts and send them all our money, all our food, and all our wealth to keep them away. And even so, they threaten to invade at any moment. That's the kind of situation God's people were living on, living under there in Judah. It was a situation of fear and terror and looming dark clouds on the horizon. That's the political situation that they were under, which was bad. But the spiritual situation was even worse because Ahaz had shut the doors of the temple. He shut down the worship of Yahweh. And he took Solomon's bronze altar of burnt offering. That's the altar which represents that altar in Isaiah's vision there in chapter 6 where that, that, that coal from the altar touched his lips and, and, and the angel said, your sins are atoned for. And that altar, Ahaz, stuffed in a corner of the temple compound. He used it for magical divinations, and in its place he set a pagan altar built in the Syrian style. Now, to think about what that would be like for us, that's like the consistory deciding here in St. Albert, we're not going to do Christian worship anymore. But what we're going to do is we're going to meet in some field every Sunday and do smudging ceremonies. That's how massive a change it was, what Ahaz was doing to God's people. It was unthinkable. And so as we read chapter 10 before our chapter, our text chapter, we see that God uses Assyria to judge Syria, Israel, and Judah. And he uses Assyria like an axe to chop them down. The Bible often speaks of, of great leaders and powerful people as massive trees and referring to the trees of Lebanon, which were massively huge and still are. And then in, if you look at chapter 10, if you have your Bible open, look there at verse 28. God himself marches on Jerusalem. And he, in verse 33 of chapter 10, he cuts down all of the lofty and all of the great, all of the exalted. He reduces them to nothing. He reduces the house of David 
to nothing, to a stump. It's the stump of Jesse. That's the pre-royal name of David's house. It's back to insignificance. From the, the glorious heights of David and Solomon, the royal house of David has become weak and idolatrous and unfaithful and eventually in exile reduced to total obscurity. What is God doing? Well, God lops down human pride to make way for the coming king of righteousness. He does that in the world. He does that to nations. He does that to groups and communities. He does it to individual people. Something has to happen before Christ can sit on the throne, whether it's of the world, the nation, the community, or the individual. For Christ to sit on the throne, all human pride must be cut down. If God is putting you through the ringer, and if God is crushing you with affliction, one of the reasons he may be doing that is to work on that pride thing that we all have and that we all need to lose. And from that stump comes gospel hope, new life, new kingship. And we know more than Isaiah did. We know how humble and lowly that stump was. We know that King Jesus was born to a couple who though they were descendants of David, were just mere peasants living in a despised and insignificant part of the country. But from that lowly and insignificant stump rises the king of the world. And so God's people are living in a time of political turmoil here. War, fear, uncertainty, looming threats, gathering darkness, spiritual decay, rampant idolatry. And as I said before, chapters 1 through to 39 of Isaiah mainly concentrate on God's judgment on sin. But here, in, verse 11, in chapter 11, even in wrath, God remembers mercy. We have here in chapter 11 one of the most glorious expressions of the gospel, of the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. There will arise a king from the nothingness of what humanity is reduced to. There will arise a king, verse 2, upon whom rests the Spirit of God. And if you count them, how many times the Spirit is qualified here? The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, the, fear, the, spirit, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. That's seven times. And you remember what the Lord says to us when he greets us every Sunday afternoon, and we get that greeting from the seven spirits who are before his throne, that refers to the fullness of the Spirit of God. And if you look there at those words, counsel and might, the Spirit of counsel and might, and you remember those beautiful, glorious words of chapter 9 of that child who will be born and that son who will be given, who will be wonderful counselor, and mighty God. This is another prophecy of the coming birth of our Lord Jesus. Verse 3, and his delight will be 
in the fear of the Lord. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? It's not being scared of the Lord. That's not what it means. There are two different ways to fear the Lord. Those who live in sin and who love sin fear the Lord because they're afraid of Him. But those who love God and are loved by Him, when they fear the Lord, this is what it means. It means that they fear to do anything which does not please Him. It means a total worship of God in total submission to God's will. And it was the lack of the fear of the Lord that caused all the problems in the first place. It's the absence of the fear of the Lord that amongst the kings of Judah, and they were followed by the people in this, in despising the fear of the Lord. That brought about all the darkness, all the pain, all the suffering. But now arises a new king of whom it is prophesied in Psalm 40, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll, I delight to do your will, O my God. And so this king, this king who shall arise, clearly will undo the sins of the fallen house of David. But not just that. He will go back to where it all started, and he will undo the fall itself. Look there at the end of verse 3. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Think of our mother Eve. She heard the words of the serpent and took them in, took them to heart. She saw that the tree was a delight to the eyes, and desired to make one wise. And she chose that her delight would not be in the fear of the Lord, but that her delight would be in the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And the coming king who is also the last Adam, comes to undo that sin and that fall. And so verse 4, with righteousness he shall judge the poor. He's not going to be deciding things in human terms or what he sees or what he hears, but he will be deciding things according to God's revealed will, which is what Eve should have used as a standard for her life and her choices. Now, we know what happens when there is judgment with unrighteousness because we can see it all around us. Sin brings injustice. The Scripture says that the poor man's field produces abundant harvest, but injustice sweeps it away. And we see unrighteous and unjust laws being passed in our world and even in our own land, crushing taxes upon those who produce food, the forced closure of farms, family farms in the Netherlands, the second largest exporter of food in the world, and we see unrighteous, unjust laws coming out of the blind foolishness of sin, which hates life and desires death. 
which considers human life a parasite on the planet. And this kind of foolishness and sin and injustice brings misery. We see it in the blind and irrational fear of lockdowns causing a domino effect of huge numbers of deaths by hunger in the poorest nations of the world. Things that we don't really notice in our own lives, but things that are certainly felt by millions in what is called the majority world. Our Savior judges with righteousness. He brings equity, fair and just treatment to the crushed and the afflicted. And the question that the Holy Spirit puts before us this morning is, are we on his side? And before we quickly answer, of course we're on his side, we need to ask ourselves, are we aware? And do we care about righteousness and justice and equity for the poor? Not just in words, not just in our conversations and our Facebook posts, but in real life. Are we aware? Do we care about the sweatshops in Cambodia or the slave labor in China that produce the cheap products that we mindlessly consume on Amazon Prime? Are we thinking about these things or do we think that's for liberals to think about? God gives us something to think about, brothers and sisters. We, we sang Psalm 72 before worship about how God, Christ the King, is just to the poor and the needy. And if he is our king, if he is our Lord, we need to look like him. We need to think like him. We need to act as he would have us act. And so we continue there in verse 4. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and slay the wicked with the breath of his lips. Now this is this is speaking about the New Testament era. You see, in the Old Testament, the whole thing about sin and righteousness was very physical. You knew who the enemies were. You grabbed a sword and you charged at them because they wanted to erase God's people, so you had to erase them before you got erased. That's, it was very simple. But now we live in the New Testament area in which our battle is not against flesh and blood, and we see it here in our text. Because the Messiah King wages war with words, with the rod of his mouth. He wages war on injustice with words. And that's why he is portrayed in the book of Revelation as that warrior king with a sharp two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. Because it is through the preaching of the word of God that righteousness and justice go out into the world as the church preaches Christ as the church speaks truth to power. If you have your Bible handy, look at 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3 to 5, where the apostle speaks about that. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's how he strikes the earth with the rod of his mouth and slays the wicked 
with the breath of his lips through the preaching of the gospel. And that's why the church, as much as we love to serve the needy and, and help in the, the soup kitchens and, and help at the food bank and, and do all things which are very important, the church will always keep in the first place the preaching of the gospel because that is the primary task of the church. And everything else flows from it. You see, God created the world through the word. And God restores and he recreates the world through the word. This is how he fights his battles. Not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Is that how you fight your battles? Well, to do that, you need to know your weapon. You need to know the sword of the Spirit which is being given to you. You need to know what it's like. You need to know what its attributes are and what its specifications are and how it is to be handled rightly. You need to know how to use it defensively and offensively. And that means you need to be spending time. And when I say you, brothers and sisters, I'm preaching to myself here. You need to spend time in the Word or you won't know how to fight. So we continue there into verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is his armor, righteousness, faithfulness. This is his piece of military kit which holds all of his weaponry together from which his sword hangs. And we saw that some time ago when we were looking at Ephesians chapter 6 where the Lord told us through the Apostle Paul, Stand therefore, church of God, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness because our armor looks like the armor of our commander-in-chief. And so there's righteousness and faithfulness that he brings as the great king of kings. Now, what did unrighteousness and unfaithfulness bring? Well, that brought disaster. That brought enemies invading, misery, poverty, destruction, wild animals attacking, just like all the curses in Deuteronomy 28 and all the curses in Leviticus 26 coming upon the land and covenant wrath. And if you want to see it today, what do unrighteousness and unfaithfulness bring? Then just look around at the world, look at the news. There are people murdering each other in eastern Ukraine. They're lobbing pieces of metal at each other in all kinds of formats to mangle and destroy each other's bodies, to destroy each other's homes and families. And that's the war that we hear about, but all the other wars that the mainstream media doesn't even bother carrying or treating, like the way that Saudi Arabia is destroying the poor and the afflicted in Yemen, and the bloodbaths that are happening in northern Africa, which we can't even be bothered to read about. That's what unrighteousness and unfaithfulness bring. But what does perfect righteousness and perfect faithfulness restore? Well, we see that in the end of our text. Perfect righteousness and perfect faithfulness bring about a new 
world. They bring about the undoing of the fall because the king is coming. And this is what he is coming to do, to give us back the home that God made for us the way it is supposed to be. Now look at those verses 6 through to 9. And you can see that it is a clear picture of paradise. Jesus, the King of Kings, arises to bring back paradise. And to make it even more clear that this is the undoing of the fall that we're talking about, flip to Isaiah chapter 65, verse 25 in your Bible. Isaiah 65, 25. And here the the prophet uses similar wording, but he adds something significant which makes it even more clear that he's referring to the undoing of the fall. Isaiah 65, 25, the, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. You see that reference to dust being the serpent's food? This is a clear reference to the total victory of the seed of the woman over the serpent, which God already promised way back there in Genesis chapter 3. This is the final conquest and the victory over the ancient serpent. It is the restoration of paradise. And paradise is a place where humans don't kill each other, and animals don't kill humans or each other. That's what the Scripture says. Now, I want to take a moment here to warn you, especially the university students, against the danger of that movement which is called theistic evolution. It is an attempt by Christians, by people who proclaim and confess that they are followers of Christ, to connect scriptural teaching and make it compatible in their eyes and their understanding with modern science and with evolutionism. And I want to be clear on this, brothers and sisters, that even though this may be very attractive, it's incredibly dangerous. Theistic evolution believes that God created the world, as it's described in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, through the process of evolution. And to just sum it up and cut right to the chase, that means that in their understanding that when God said it was good, it was good. It was good. Seven times, it was very good. That what God was calling good was a world in which there were catastrophes, in which there were earthquakes, in which the animal ancestors of Adam and Eve killed each other and died of cancer and tiger bites and all kinds of other things, in which there was death and destruction, and pain, and sickness, and in which nature was red in tooth and claw. And because theistic evolution believes in a God that says those things are very good, theistic evolution 
is a vile and abominable heresy because it believes in a different God than the God of the Scriptures. Jesus has come. Emmanuel, God with us, the true God, has come to ransom captive Israel. The branch of Jesse's stem came to rescue his people from the depth of hell, to disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and to put death's dark shadows to flight. Jesus, the Savior, the King, has come to bring us back to a world where there is no sin and no death, where no blood is shed, where no longer do people and animals die and kill each other, a world in which snakes are not scary and dangerous anymore, a world in which lions eat straw like the ox. And I spoke to a very important scientist once that said very primly, oxen can't eat straw. Straw is for bedding material. It's not for food. Well, if you look it up, uh, farmers can feed. See, straw is, in, in the word here is, is what's left over. You've, you've crushed the, the ears of wheat and you're left with the stalks. It can be chopped up and it can be used partially as nutrition for, for the herd. It's still done today. I just checked it this week. And you, you remember what God said in Genesis chapter 1, verse 30, that he gave every green thing for food to the animals. God made the world in which animals were vegetarian. And I came across something very interesting this week as I was, when you're preparing for a sermon, you often end up reading a lot of things and, and uh, it's sometimes difficult to, to think of which things you should leave out of the sermon, but I want to share this with you. I came across this story, it was back in the 60s or 70s, I think, somewhere in the States, of a lioness, a lion cub called Little Tyke, and, and she was rescued from her mother. Her mother had killed the first five cubs, so the zookeepers were ready for this one. After five, they were ready, and they saved Little Tyke from her mother. And she was brought up on a wild game refuge somewhere in the States. And they figured, well, she's a lioness, so we better teach her, to, you know, we better feed her meat because a full-grown lioness can not normally eat about 15 pounds of meat per day. So they tried to feed her meat, and she wouldn't eat it. She wouldn't touch it. And so they asked for help, and finally somebody said, well, put a few drops of blood in, into the milk that you're feeding her, and then she'll get used to the taste. And if there was one drop of blood in the milk, she wouldn't take it. And so finally, she ended up living off a vegetarian diet of grains and raw eggs and, and milk. No blood, no meat. She would spend about an hour per day out in the field chewing on the tall grasses to condition her stomach. And she grew to be a very healthy and impressive lioness. There are pictures of her lying down with a lamb. She was absolutely harmless and wouldn't hurt even a little lamb. And so it is possible. And it was certainly the way things were in the beginning. Now this, this new world, this heaven on earth of which our text speaks, 
we have already begun to taste it in our lives. Think of Lord's Day 22. I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy because that's where it starts. Heaven begins in our hearts because sin is no longer on the throne. Christ is king. I am no longer a slave to sin. I am a slave to righteousness and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's where it begins. Jesus is renovating the world, starting one heart at a time. And from your heart, it spreads to your life and your words and your actions and your relationships, your family, your home, your work, your contribution to the community and to society, where the first stirrings of heaven are. They make themselves known because there is no longer anger Bitterness, conflict, hatred, selfishness, unrighteousness, the fallen world and the works of the flesh. But where Christ is king, there is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the taste of heaven itself. Now notice, as we look at our text, that this peace and this heavenly peace in our lives and our hearts, and our, as it spreads throughout the world, it follows the judgment of verse 4, and it springs from the righteousness of verse 5. And look carefully at how the Lord explains it in verse 9. He says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. He's referring to the animals. And by uh, extrapolation to human beings as well, because when we fell and we started killing each other, the animals started killing each other as well. We took the lead, we gave the example, but now things are undone. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why not? Well, God explains it right there. See that word right after mountain? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Why won't they hurt? Why won't they destroy in all of my holy mountain? And here he's referring to the whole earth as his dwelling place. Well, they're not going to hurt or destroy because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Now, we know what Jesus taught us, that eternal life is to know the Father and to know Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's life. That's true life, to know God. And where God is known, that is heaven. Not just in Judah, but all of the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord. That is when heaven has come down to earth. Do we really believe that? Do we believe that in the measure that the knowledge of the Lord goes forth and expands and advances, there heaven, the kingdom of heaven, is established and advances? Do we really believe that? If we really believe that, why aren't we planting more churches here in Canada and around the world? Why are we in maintenance mode? How much do we really desire 
to see the advance of the kingdom of God in this world? How much do we long for it? How much do we pray for it? How much do we work for it? How much are we willing to sacrifice for it? Now, there are two choices. We can be like Ahaz. He was worried about earthly success. He was in fear. He was in terror of world threats against his comfort and his security and his earthly life. And so to deal with all of his traumas and fears, he adopted the pathetic pagan worship of the world and all its answers. That's one choice. Or... We can be sons and daughters of the King of Kings, and we can strap on our armor of righteousness and truth, and we can march towards the new heavens and the new earth, looking forward to the final coming of the King in all His glory, and singing with the church of all ages, O come, O come, Emmanuel, save us, that we eternally in paradise regained may dwell, forever shut the gates of hell. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Amen.